Hey there everybody, Tavis here. Just wanted to make a little introduction for this legacy interview. Now this was recorded back in 2017 with Dr. Charles Kohlhaas and the old host of the Rare Petro podcast, Michael Tanner. Now Dr. Kohlhaas is one of the world's leading oil field advisors with over 60 years of oil field experience. He graduated from Mines in 1956 with a degree in petroleum engineering, and then he went to work with Mobile and Arco for 17 years in different areas, and then pursued his graduate studies in geophysics again back at the Colorado School of Mines. After receiving his PhD, he taught for quite a while, and nowadays he is an expert consultant for many people. What you can expect to hear in this interview is a little bit about the Arabic oil embargo, its repercussions, and U.S. government policy responses based on a lack of understanding of the industry. So if you think that interests you, well, this will be part one of a three-part series, and I highly encourage you to go ahead and give this a listen. Without further ado, I give you part one, deep from the archives, so please enjoy. Dr. Charles Kohlhaas, thanks for joining us today. I know uh, you're a pretty busy man, so thanks for taking the time to come and sit down with us. It's my pleasure. Yeah, no, this is, uh, I mean, honestly, I have no idea where to begin this podcast. You have been a professor at Mines for 20 years. You were in oil and gas for 20 years. And now you're one of the leading experts in uh, oil geopolitical commentaries, which all of it is extremely fascinating. So I guess out of the big three, which one have you enjoyed doing more? Oh, I can't say. It's all been interesting, exciting, and it's a—it's an interesting business. It all rotates around the oil business. I grew up in the oil business, so I have a certain affinity for it. And uh, where a lot of people are critical of it and think it's a polluter, I grew up in a time when we took a lot of pride in it. Uh, we were taking a lot of the hazards and and riggers out of transportation, and we've created a world where grandmothers can fly across the country and visit their grandkids, and I take a lot of pride in that. We put heat in people's homes, and we've created uh, ease of transportation, which makes it easy to move goods around and create a lot of prosperity. The industry does have some pollution problems, and we're taking care of them. Uh, United, United States has reduced emissions more than any other country on the planet in the last 20 years, and I think we can take pride in that as well. Oh, definitely. Uh, I actually found something really interesting on looking at your background. You were one of the founding members of the Environmental Science Program at School of Mines. Is that correct? Well, I was, yes. And uh, that was during the 1970s, and I was appointed to the committee uh, by the department chairman in petroleum engineering where I was a, a professor and uh, he saw the necessity of dealing with environmental problems and uh, environmental concerns were going to be an ongoing problem and he was convinced that this was something the industry had to address. Uh, There were a lot of places in the world where we had created pollution and eyesores and it was something that he saw as a trend that we needed to deal with. In the, in the oil industry as well as the society in general. So we created a, a committee and uh, that committee actually had some difficulties getting the environmental science program started. Um, we had to change out the faculty in environmental science a couple of times, but it's worked out. We've got 
the department's done well, and I run into the graduates uh, periodically, and and they're quite good at what they do. Yeah, that's got to be pretty cool to see people who graduated from a program that you helped start it. I okay. yeah, yeah, it was it, um, something something else that uh, turned out quite positive in the long run. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so from School of Mines, you were a professor there for about twenty years. Um which we could talk, that could be a whole nother podcast segment, which we're not really going to do. So after you uh, stopped working at Mines, you really got into being an executive at a lot of these different oil companies. You started a company called Kelt Energy. You were with Saba Patrol, or Saba Petroleum, Automated Controls, True Star Petroleum. You, you were involved with all these different companies. Did you have one specific one that you enjoyed working with more than the other? Well, what happened was that the, uh, and I'd like to talk about how this all happened uh, in, in a few minutes on the great grand scale for the industry. But uh, there was a, I left the School of Mines and was consulting for several years in Europe, mostly in Italy, but in a few other places as well. And I came back to the United States, started Kelta Energy uh, with a group of French investors. We built that up, took it public in London, and, uh, and they were planning on taking the company private again, so I sold out while it was, uh, public and stock was doing well. The industry at that time, there was a severe price drop and the industry was in a lot of disarray. And after I sold out of Kelt, um, I was asked by a law firm in Denver to uh, prepare a strategic plan for him for a company that was in Chapter 11, which I did. And that got me involved with a number of troubled companies, uh, needed rearrangement, reorganization, refinancing, and so on. And like a lot of other people, I also worked in a couple of other fields as well to survive. <laughs> yeah. And, and is that really because today you're known as one of the top people to do restructuring, reorganizations, and really bring these troubled companies out of there. Is that something that you ever thought you'd be doing or just kind of you just stumbled into it? I just kind of stumbled into it. They, uh, like I say, a lawyer downtown, and he called and asked me if I could prepare this plan for him. And I had just, uh, as I say, sold out of a company and took all the records, put them in banker boxes and storage. And I said, yeah, I can. I said, uh, do they have any assets? And he said, yes. And I said, what are they worth? He said, I haven't got a clue. I need you to tell me and the court. <laughs> so, so that's what got me started. So from so from a lot of these uh, restructuring companies, you kind of became involved with the more of the macro economic point of view of the oil industry, not just from a company to company, but how oil and gas moves throughout the world. And you you've started writing these oil commentaries, and as I've been reading them, there's three main keys I uh, I get from them. One is you talk about where we are, you talk about how we got here, and then you talk about where we're going. And so I I want to start right now with. Where are we in terms of oil, oil, just the oil market in general, both in the U.S. and in the world? Okay. Well, as everybody knows, the United States, starting about uh, 2006 and seven, uh, started increasing its gas production through horizontal drilling and multi-stage fracturing. And this was a convergence of technologies that have been in development for a long time. I mean, people have been drilling horizontal wells in the industry since the 1930s. And we've been fracturing wells since the late 1940s. Uh, those two technologies came together um, and 
The whole idea was developed primarily by George Mitchell uh, with Mitchell Energy, and he was just persistent every year, drilling two or three wells, trying to improve the techniques, trying to improve the technology and make it all work. Uh, the first field where he was really uh, proved the success of that was Barnett Shale down um, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area uh, for gas. And that started developing gas production. It showed the viability of the technology and people obviously started to wonder, I wonder if we can make it work in an oil field. And the first big field that, uh, where it was significantly uh, developed and perfected was the Bakken field up North Dakota. And so uh, those two fields really were the pace setters for the application of this technology, both for gas and for oil. It's spread throughout the country now. The uh, gas has uh, been developed in a number of basins, uh, so is oil, and they're still being developed. The benefit of this is that the United States increased its production by over 4 million barrels a day, which was a total surprise in the world economy, so to speak. It took a lot of people off guard, including our own government and uh, OPEC and foreign producers, the Russians, the Chinese. Nobody expected the United States to increase production so much. It puts the United States industry and the United States economy in a strong position with regard to oil. In the meantime, overseas, we've had the Arab Spring, which has disintegrated into chaos throughout the Middle East. Uh, a lot of conflict. Uh, we've had the rise of China, which has become a strong economic force in the world. And, it's, and they have now, just in the last, recently in the last few months, they've passed the United States as the largest importer of oil in the world. And so we, uh, we have a changing industry and we have a changing economy internationally. The, um, after the Soviet Union um, fell apart in the end of the Cold War, it was largely expected that uh, the world economy would go off with free trade and we'd have a globalized economy and the various countries therein would share in the world's prosperity. That hasn't quite worked out. There's a lot of conflict in the world right now and a lot of the institutions that govern international trade, international finance that were established after World War II are, we're finding that those are not being totally accepted by a lot of the countries that are, whose economies are now growing, who were, we did consider as developing countries and they are developing, they're developing quite fast. And so those institutions are being strained We've got, uh, we've got a situation in the world where power relationships are changing and those changes require attention by the United States and the new administration. Yeah, interesting. And, and, and I know something we had talked about earlier was the fact that policy is always so far behind these changing times. Something changes, we need to enact new policy on it, but by the time we can past new policy, something else has already changed. So do you think there's a way to streamline the way 
the U.S. actually deals with oil and gas policy, or is it just kind of going to be in this cycle of we're always kind of maybe be two steps behind? Well, I'd like to think there's some way we can streamline how we do it, and that's partly why I've written the commentaries to try and bring some of these features out. Um, part of this is I've got experience with what happened in the 1970s, and it's a good example to look back on. Uh, many people have forgotten what happened in what I call the decade of confusion. Mm-hmm. following the Arab oil embargo. And uh, there are lessons to be learned there. And so I try to point out some of the things we did then that didn't work out too well, some of the policies that ensued, and review that and see how we can take lessons learned from that experience. Yeah, I want to dive into a little more about what happened there in the 70s there because The United States was, at that time, the top producer. There was the seven big oil producers, five of them were the U.S., and the other one being BP and Shell. But then there was an oil embargo enacted by the government, and it sent everyone into a panic. And you were one of the few people that recognized that we don't really need to be in a panic. You were were asked by someone at the mine staff to put together some information, and I'm just interested, what did you actually find? Well, what happened was, let's take a look at the industry the way it was before that. Mm -hmm. Um, The typical business model for an American oil company was a company was integrated top to bottom. And there were 30 to 35, maybe 40 different companies in the country this way. And what they did, they went out, they found their own oil fields, they developed them, they produced them, they put the oil into their own refinery, and they took the product out of the refinery and sold it in their own gas stations. Now, these companies ranged from the very large majors such as Standard of New Jersey and Standard of California, Standard of New York, all big companies, and they all marketed uh, through their own gas stations. You also had a uh, Shell was prominent in the United States, BP was not. And, uh, but these companies essentially had a closed model and the pricing system was determined by themselves with themselves, so to speak. They posted prices which they were willing to pay for independence, and the independent operator sold all their oil and gas through a pipeline system to the major companies. Uh, The small independents in those days didn't have refineries, although there were some small refiners. and some of those integrated companies were not too big, but they were integrated companies. So it was an entirely different business model. The, for instance, reserves. Reserves of a company were one of the be- biggest secrets that company had. They determined the reserves for their own benefit and their own management, and it was a management tool, but they kept that extremely secret. Most of those companies also, this is an interesting aspect, they also kept a surplus production capacity because they were always worried whether they were going to have an accident someplace, where they would have a little failure in their exploration program and not find new oil fields as they needed them. And they always kept a cushion there, which was somewhere 10 to 15% extra production capacity so that they could be sure they kept their refinery full kept it supplied, and be sure they had plenty of product to go out into those gas stations. So it was an entirely different business model. And But by the end of the 1960s, the Vietnam War and various other pressures were putting pressure on the U.S. dollar. And 
Concurrently, the United States was reaching its limit. Its own demand was reaching its ability to produce. And that happened in 1970, basically. The United States consumption reached its limit to produce. And at that point, the world started to change greatly. What happened was that because of the strain on the dollar, foreigners were starting to redeem their dollars that they held as reserves in their own foreign governments and foreign banks were starting to redeem the dollars they held for gold. And in August 1971, President Nixon closed the gold window, it was called. And he said, all right, you can't do that anymore. We're no longer going to redeem dollars for gold. That had a big impact on the world economy and especially on foreigners who placed a great deal of value on gold. And that included the Arabs. And so that's what started the change in the relationship between the United States and the Arab countries. Interesting. Okay. I, yeah, the, I had no idea that Nixon, because we went off the, that's not when we were on the gold standard. We were off the gold standard in the early 60s, if I'm not mistaken. Early 30s. Early 30s, we went off the gold standard. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, very interesting. And then, so the so we have the oil, the oil embargo. Pa we realize policy is, la we had zero policy to deal with what was going on in the oil industry. We tried to develop and actually did develop some policy that's almost stayed the same up until today, correct? Well, what happened was the Arabs started, the Arabs started pressuring to raise the price. Mm. And as soon as, and this was emphasized in their mind by when Nixon closed the gold window. Because to them, the dollar didn't really mean too much. Uh, they care about gold and they care about solid means of exchange. So they started pressuring for a price increase. Henry Kissinger was national security advisor at the time and he got involved in this. And you can read about this in great detail in his book, Years of Upheaval. And he goes through the whole thing step by step. At the same time, they were pressuring that they started, were thinking about taking over ownership of Aramco. The Middle East was divided up after World War I by the British and the French. And essentially the French got Syria and the British had Persia already. They were dominant there. They dominated in the Gulf states They and they uh, essentially created what we now call Iraq. And this was, these were all former uh, ownership areas and part of the Ottoman Empire. But the Ottomans had been defeated during World War I by the British in the Middle East. And so they decided where everybody was going to be and what the boundaries were. And they were rather arbitrary. They didn't really have too much to do with uh, traditional boundaries or with separations by religion or tribe or anything else, which is why we still have things like Kurds in Iraq and Kurds in Turkey and Kurds in Syria, which is a big problem for the Kurds and they make a problem for everybody else. So the British divided all that up. The Americans were late in the war and really didn't participate in the Middle East. So the British said, okay, you can have the empty quarter which is all this empty area down in the Arabian Peninsula. 
And basically that's what happened. Well, in late 1930s, Standard of California discovered an oil field there. It's called Gowar. And it started uh, producing before the war, produced some during the war. And President Roosevelt stopped to see the king of Saudi Arabia on his way back from the Alta Conference and essentially guaranteed the security of Saudi Arabia. Now, what people don't realize now is what the king of Saudi Arabia was concerned about was being taken over by the British. Oh. And, and Roosevelt said, no, no, we're not going to let him do that. And uh, so you have a guarantee of security from the United States. And after the war, the American oil companies moved into uh, the Middle East and moved into Saudi Arabia in particular. It turned out a Gawar was so big, Standard of Cal needed a partner, so they brought Texaco in. And later they brought, they needed another partner, so they put it out and Standard of New York, which became Mobile later, and Standard of New Jersey, which became Exxon, came in and, and entered uh, for certain ownerships of Aramco. And those are the four companies that owned Aramco going into the 1970s. And so were we really concerned about how oil was priced? No. It was American companies. They priced the oil to themselves. And what did they use? They used the dollar. So they were in this big discussion about ownership. And they were in this big discussion about the Arabs wanted the price increased because they needed more revenue. About that time, we had the Yom Kippur War. And it's interesting that the Saudi, um, Saudi sent a minister over twice in 1973 to warn the United States that Egypt and Syria were getting ready to invade Israel. And basically, the United States government didn't believe it and dismissed it. And, but the Saudis made the point. They said, look, we, are, uh, we hope you can stop this because if they do invade, we're going to have to support our Arab brethren. And that's gonna create a confrontation between us and you. And we don't wanna have that, so try and stop it. Well, the United States government didn't do anything about it. Egypt and and uh, Syria did invade Israel, and for the four, first four days, uh, Israel was in a lot of trouble. They were also burning up a lot of ordnance, and so the decision was made in Washington, we have to resupply Israel. Because we resupplied Israel, and quite strongly, Israel was able to turn the war around and defeated both Syria and Egypt, and they actually crossed the Suez Canal or in approaching Cairo uh, when Kissinger managed to negotiate a ceasefire. And they had surrounded the big part of the Egyptian army in the Sinai. So Kissinger negotiated a, a ceasefire. The Arabs, in the meantime, said, okay, we're, because you supported Israel, we're going to embargo oil in the United States. I was on the faculty up here at the School of Mines at that time. All right, largest petroleum engineering department in the United States. 
A lot of people recruit there. We have alumni all over the world. People support research there. They, they recruit. We, we have an extensive network in the industry. All, everybody on the faculty had worked in the industry for, for companies. And our reaction was, the Arabs are going to embargo oil the United States, so what? Who cares? The oil companies have got plenty of oil to send in from other sources. It, it's, it's a gesture, and we understand why they're doing it, uh, to look good to the other Arab countries, but it's not a significant event for the United States. Well, the United States government didn't realize that and realized that the United States government at that time was in considerable disarray because of the Watergate scandal. And there were hearings going on. A lot of people in the government worried whether they were going to jail. Some of them did, uh, but it was a major problem in the government, and it was a major distraction. So Kissinger, again, by this time had become Secretary of State. He was one of the few people in the government of, of considerable influence who was not tainted by Watergate. Uh, George Schultz was also in the same position. He was Secretary of Treasury, and he was also untouched by Watergate. So Kissinger started negotiating, trying to figure out what to do and how to stop the uh, problems over the oil embargo, because Kissinger and most of the people in the government, basically they panicked. And they thought, the United States is facing an oil shortage and it'll collapse the economy. We have to do something about this embargo right away. So we started negotiating that. In the meantime, the department chairman at the School of Mines asked me, he said, Charles, he says the government's going to clear, clear out of hand here. He says, try and figure out what's going on. So I started calling around. I started calling classmates, alumni. I called people who were recruited with us. I called refining centers. Where's the oil shortage? And nobody seemed to know. Nobody in the industry seemed to know where there was an oil shortage. I called people in Houston. Have you got plenty of oil? Yeah. Our tanks are full. Do you have tankers coming in? Yeah. Are they coming from Saudi Arabia? No. <laughs> They're coming from someplace else. But you got plenty? Yes. Nobody had any shortages. But the point was, the announcements went out on the 10 o'clock news in various places that the Arabs had cut off oil, that we were facing an oil shortage, and all the talking heads on the news said, went into a panic, just like the government did. And so the next morning, everybody runs down to the gas station, tries to fill up. There was a run on the gas stations, and that's what led to the gas lines and everything. But there was never a shortage of oil. And that concludes the first part of the interview. Thanks for listening. We will be sure to release the next part in the few coming weeks, so be sure you are subscribed to the Rare Petro Podcast Network. And until we see you next time, take care, everybody.